Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, these, um, these words that come ultimately from you, they give us just a glimpse into a reality uh, that we barely understand, if at all. Uh, but you share these things with us to help us to know, help us to see, help us to respond rightly. And so that is what we pray, uh, that you would uh, speak to our hearts now, that you would help me to speak in a way that's honoring to you, so that together we, your church, might be strengthened. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of my seminary, one of my favorite seminary professors actually, um, once said that if you ever find yourself in a conversation with someone else about religion, and it feels kind of sterile, you know, one of those situations where people are like, well, that's good, that, that truth is good for you, I'm glad you're finding inspired, and you feel like you, you want to break out of it, the, the way to do that, he says, is to start talking about angels. Because he said, you know, the, the thing about the way we view God is there's a sense that God has kind of become domesticated by our culture. So when people hear us talking about God, there's kind of a way of filling in the gaps and thinking, oh, well, they're talking about a higher power, or they're talking about a sense of transcendence, or they're talking about some sort of life force. There's a way that God can somehow still be kind of kept within a larger, more secular way of seeing things. But when you talk about angels, things get weird. Right? I mean, when you actually speak about the idea of, of supernatural beings, angels and demons that are present and at work in this world, and you do so without irony, well, that makes the conversation get a lot more interesting. I think he's right. C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote, speaking about devils, but I think it's true for both, that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I would suggest that for us, our danger is not primarily the latter of excessive interest. Instead, it's the former, to, to believe that, that if they exist, they're far removed, or really, if we're honest at times, to maybe a part of ourselves wonder if that's more something that we believed maybe when we were kids, but, but no longer. And if we're ever tempted to have that sense, well, Daniel would like to have a word with us. We've been now uh, working through the book of Daniel for a number of weeks. We have one more week after this Sunday. And, Dan and uh, perhaps you've noticed that angels just keep on appearing. We saw at the fiery furnace. We saw one when, when Daniel was in the lion's den. And then more recent, as we're seeing things through the eyes of Daniel, as he's seeing these visions again and again, angels keep coming to him and and here in our passage today, angels really come to the forefront. So Daniel tells us or, that, that he has been mourning for, for 21 days. He has been fasting. We're not exactly sure why, but it's, it's likely given at the time that he's talking about three years into the rule of Cyrus that he's grieving over the fact that even though people are back at Jerusalem, it is still so far from being rebuilt. And so he tells us that as he is doing this, he is now on the, 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 the riverbed of the Tigris with other people. Perhaps it's even a prayer service that's taking place. And as they are praying, something happens. And it's not, it's not just a dream for Daniel, because Daniel tells us that the people who were with him feel it as well. 
They, they can't see anything, but they find themselves suddenly uncontrollably trembling, barely able to stand up, and perhaps without even understanding why, they feel the need to run. And they run, and they hide, and Daniel is left alone. And Daniel doesn't just feel something. He sees someone. And, and this is what he says. He says, As I was standing on the bank of the river, I lifted up my eyes and looked... And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. The, the, the clothing of, of linen and gold is, is priestly. That's the priest, the high priest wore gold and linen. It, it's symbolic of one who is able to stand in the presence of God. And that really is the only normal detail of this person that Daniel encounters. He says that his body, he, you know, he struggled, I think, to actually put words to it in a way that we can understand. His body sparkles like gems, like the green gem barrel. The arms and legs reflect light in the way that polished metal does, where it's almost like a mirror. It's just bright and shining, and, and the light perhaps comes to a climax when he looks at the face. Have you ever, in the middle of night, been outdoors, and it's a storm, and and it's completely dark until suddenly a flash of lightning comes near. And it's almost blinding. You can barely keep your eyes open in the moment. But it's just a moment. Daniel says this person's face was like endless lightning flash. And, and his eyes in the middle of this face were like two torches of fire. Daniel would say, yes, angels are very real because I have seen one. And that is the consistent testimony throughout Scripture. The Bible is completely unembarrassed by the idea of angels. It just essentially takes it for granted again and again. We see them appearing in and out, but, but never really being explained. There's always a sense that these angels are part of a reality that we're never really going to get in this side of heaven, at least. They, they just give us these momentary glimpses of a reality that we barely understand. So the name that oftentimes is given to God in the Old Testament is the Lord of hosts. Or when we sing the, a mighty fortress later on, we'll sing Lord Sabaoth. That's just the Hebrew for the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And the armies that's being spoken of there are not just armies of people. They're the armies we saw, if you remember, in Daniel chapter 7, where it talks about 10,000 upon 10,000 of angels standing around the ancient of days. In other words, so many that can't be counted. Our universe, we are meant to understand, is chock full of God's angels. And these angels are not all the same. We know some are described as seraphim and cherubim, fiery creatures that, that act as attendants to God and God's presence. Some are described as archangels overseeing other angels. We know that they have the capacity for great gentleness, like the one who cared for Elijah when he was exhausted. They also have the capacity for great violence, like those who slayed the Assyrian army that was surrounding Jerusalem. We know that they are attentive to us. They, they, they see, they hear, they rejoice. They rejoiced on the day that Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest. And it says that the whole of the angels rejoice every time a sinner repents and come to Christ. Angels are real. And there's a part of me that, that wishes that we could, could see them, don't you? But I think we're actually given a bit of a sense of why we usually don't. 
when we see what Daniel's experience is. Because as, as Daniel sees this angel and its glory, what, what happens? He is, well, he is completely overwhelmed. He says, I was left alone, saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. And it says, my radiant appearance was fearfully changed. Literally, my splendor was changed to ruin. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you might remember this time when Nebuchadnezzar, who was this great king, and looked on and said, how great I am. And in a moment, suddenly, he was brought down and became like a beast. His splendor was brought to ruin. And there's something similar going on here. Or if you know the book of Isaiah, there's this moment where Isaiah is in a vision in the temple, and he sees God, and he says, woe to me, I am undone, for I have seen the Lord. And that is what's happening to Daniel. He sees someone who is not God, but is a reflection of God, and just the, the very vision of the greatness and the power of the glory of God, even as it's reflected, is too much for him. In a moment, he realizes his smallness, his weakness, his sinfulness, and the splendor he thought he had. Though he was a prayerful, humble person, even still, the splendor he thought he had was brought to ruin, and he was brought down. And then the angel speaks, and in some ways things become even more terrifying for him. He says the, the voice of this angel was like the voice of a multitude, like an entire army speaking in unison. It was that loud. And the moment that he heard it, it says he fell down and fell asleep. In other words, he fainted. He could not take it. And even when he came to, he, he found himself mute. Now, now think of this. this. This world, we said, are filled with with perhaps billions of angels, and Daniel sees only one. And this is what happens to him. Is there any wonder that we don't see all of them? We, we wouldn't be able to handle it. But I do wonder, just for a moment, what, what happens if we did? Let's, let's say somehow we could be spared from being completely undone. Imagine if this, this curtain that in some ways acts as the barrier between heaven and earth, this curtain that keeps us from seeing the supernatural realities that surround us. Imagine if this curtain was pulled back and we could see it. If we could see the angels that are at work around us, if we could see also the battle, the devil that is, and the demons that are at work, if we could see all of these realities in every moment caring for us or whatever is going on, how would we be different? How would you be different if you could see even what Daniel could see? It's a question worth asking because, because we're not just talking about some sort of mythical imaginary thing. We're talking about something that even though we don't see, even though we don't sense, the Bible tells us is very real and very present. How would we be different? Well, even as we're beginning to think about angels, I think the, the natural question that, that occurs to us is how we're to understand how these angels relate to us. What Scripture tells us is not that angels are kind of doing their own thing, completely ignoring us. There's, there's a connection, there's an attention to us that we see is consistent among angels. If we were to summarize or kind of get to the heart of what the Bible says the angel's role is, well, then it would probably be messenger. That's actually, if you're wondering, that's literally what the word in Hebrew and Greek for angel means. It's, it's God's messenger. We might say that angels are God's ambassadors 
who speak on God's behalf, who act on God's behalf, who express God's will and his word, and, and so perfectly at times that sometimes as people are in the presence of an angel, they're spoken of being in the presence of God because this, this angel reflects God so completely. They are, they are messengers. And what's more, we also seem to see that there are ways that angels sometimes have specific responsibility for specific groups of people. So Jesus, in the book of Revelation, writes letters to the seven angels of seven churches, which seems to imply that, that angels might each be appointed to oversee a church. There, it, it suggests that there might be a Trinity Hinsdale angel who is caring for us. We also seem to see that there is some degree of assignment for angels and nations. So Deut Deuteronomy 32 speaks about how God apportioned the boundaries of the lands according to the numbers of the sons of God. And sons of God in the Old Testament oftentimes is a way of speaking of supernatural creatures. The idea seems to be that for every nation there is a specific prince, as Daniel seems to speak of these angels. And by the end of chapter 10, we have seen this figure named Michael. Chapter 12 says Michael is the, the prince, the, the, the angel who is specifically connected to caring for the people of Israel. So there are these, these responsibilities that we barely get a sense of, but that seem to be there. But perhaps the most important thing Scripture tells us about how, how angels relate to humanity is, is what we find in Hebrews. Hebrews tells us that God's angels are, quote, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They are spirits that God sends to serve us, his people, as we're being saved. They are meant to take care of us. Which actually, if we think about what we're seeing here in these verses, that's, that's exactly what, what we see, isn't it? So Daniel is just completely, utterly overwhelmed. And, and what happens? Verse 10, Behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. There's this gentle hand that is reaching out to Daniel who is overwhelmed and, and, and lifts him at least to his hands and knees. And then again, it talks about how Daniel is overwhelmed. So verse 16, behold, one in the likeness of the children of men touched my lips to help me to speak. And when he says he has no strength in him, again, verse 18, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. You, do, you, do you see this, this gentle touch that this angel is doing, giving strength to someone who feels completely helpless? And it's not just in, in this touch that we see the angel's care. It's also in his words. The words are words of encouragement. Verse 11, he says to Daniel, O oh man, greatly loved. Or then to go to the next verse, and then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your hearts to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And then again, later on in verse 19, what does the angel say to strengthen Daniel? Oh man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. We see this, this, this angel has come to serve, to care for Daniel, one of God's own. And, and we see in Scripture that that's not just something that's true for Daniel. We see 
in Psalms that, that it says that God sends his angels to encamp around those who fear him. That as we are continuing to walk throughout life, God calls upon his angels to guard our steps to keep us from, from tripping. There is this ongoing care that angels are sent to provide for us. John Calvin tries to summarize the, the testimony of Scripture this way. He says, angels are those who dispense God's kindness to us. That is their calling with relation to us, God's people. They are dispensers of God's kindness. And then, and then Calvin goes on to ask the question, but why do we even need angels? I mean, if, if, if God is able to do everything, and he is, why send an angel to encamp around us? God can protect. Why why send an angel to guard our steps? God is the one who can do that. And, and Calvin concludes that the thing is, it's not that, that God needs this, it's that we do. Specifically, the weakness of our faith. We're already told that God watches out for us, that God cares for us, but it can be hard to believe that. I mean, don't you find it hard sometimes to imagine that as we are praying, and millions, if not Billions of other people are calling out to God, that God hears each one of us and pays attention to each one of us and is watching over us as, as one of his most precious. It's so hard to rest in that. And, and Calvin says, and so here's what God does. He knows that we have a hard time and that our brains are too small, our, our faith is too weak. And so God also has chosen to send angels and he promises us, I have sent attendants to care for you. The way, the way that he puts it is innumerable guardians whom God has commanded to look after our safety. The point is, he sends angels to help us to understand just how much we are actually cared for. I mean, doesn't that in some ways change how things feel, the idea that right now there are innumerable guardians, people of power that we cannot understand, who are attentively watching over us to care for us. When you try to just take that in, that God, who has this mighty army of creatures that are so powerful, has told each one, watch over this person, watch over this person, care for them, because they're mine. What does that communicate to us? We've said that angels are messengers, and the message they are communicating to us is the very words they said to Daniel that we focused on last week. Every time we think of angels, we should recognize you and I are greatly loved. And he has sent his angels to protect us. Which is important for us to understand as we come to the third observation I want to make about this passage. We've, we've already seen that in this passage it's very clear that angels are real. And that angels as they relate to God's people are there to express God's love for us. But what we also see here is that we find ourselves in the midst of a battle that we barely understand. So, the very beginning of our passage actually points that out from the get-go. Did you notice this, where it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. What's being revealed to Daniel is something about a great conflict. What is the great conflict that he's talking about? Well, when we get to the end of chapter 10, it talks about, you know, there's, it's kind of, an, all this is an introduction to what happens in eleven. And 11 describes a conflict, and you would imagine that it's talking a lot about Persia and Greece, as we've been talking about it, and it's there, but really that's just kind of the backdrop, the context for where it goes. 
The great conflict seems to center on this small group of people, the Jews, the Israelites, the people of God, who by the world's standards do not seem that consequential. This conflict does not seem that big. And that's only because we don't understand the whole scope of it. All we see are some human armies, but, but there's something much bigger that's taking place. It is a conflict not just between people, but a conflict involving an army on both sides of countless supernatural creatures. See, we have, to this point, been only focusing on God's angels. But as Jesus himself says, the devil, the one who opposes God, also has his angels, his messengers who oppose the work of God. And we see indicators of those here. I mentioned earlier about how how Michael is described as the prince who oversees God's people. But did you notice that there are other princes that are being spoken of here? There is the prince of Persia spoken of in verse 13. And later on, there's also the prince of Greece. And it would appear these angelic leaders who are overseeing those nations are, are part of a force that is resisting the angels of God. In fact, it even gets to the point where we see how this conflict is, is manifesting itself, this conflict that's taking place. In verse 13, where the angel is actually explaining to Daniel why it's been 21 days before he's actually come to speak to Daniel. And, and here's what he says. He says in verse 13, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief priests, came, priests, princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. Which I think is what it's saying is, I was seeking to come to you. This angel, this powerful angel, I was seeking to come to you. But the angel that oversees Persia stopped me. And for 21 days we were in battle until Michael came to help me. And now I have come to be able to say what I wanted to say to you. And when I see that, I have so many questions. I mean, don't you, like, what does a three-week battle between angels even involve? Like, how does it even work? We're not told. Like, we're given no details. We're just told that that's the case. And, and then, a little bit later, we're given a few more details, where as the, the angel is getting ready soon to leave thereafter, at the very end, it says, that now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. In other words, I think it's talking about for a while, there'll be the Persian Empire, then there'll be the Greek Empire. I've been resisting the Persian Empire, it says in verse uh, 1 of 11. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen Michael. So Michael and I have been fighting. We, we see a battle that's going on, and it gives us just this brief window into something that's clearly way bigger and way more mysterious than we can comprehend. And I understand why it seems like many Christians will start kind of moving from there to try to speculate and to fill in the gaps and, and speaking about things like territorial spirits and how we engage in spiritual warfare. But in this case, we don't get this. It is silly. It is, it is foolish for us to speculate. We should only go as far as Scripture tells us and no farther because we don't understand what's going on here. But what Scripture is clear about here is there is a battle. There is a cosmic conflict between God's angels and the angels of the evil one. And we should recognize 
This terrifying angel that Daniel saw was withstood for 21 days by this evil angel, which means these evil angels also are terrifyingly powerful. And somehow, we're right in the middle of it. Because think of it, what was it that started this 21-day battle? It was Daniel's prayer. So somehow we're in this larger thing that we barely understand. And Paul speaks about this in the New Testament, in, in Ephesians. He, he tells believers, look, you need to understand you're part of a battle. The battles are not against people. It's not against flesh and blood. I feel like every generation we need to hear that again. Our, our enemy is never other people. Our battle, Paul says, is against the principalities, the spiritual powers in this present darkness, those who are the, the cosmic rulers. There are greater creatures that we do not see that we're engaged in battle with. And it would appear that this battleground, as you might imagine, because it's spiritual, is not about geographical territory, it's not about control of wealth, that the battleground, it seems to be centered on the idea of truth and what is believed. Jesus says Satan, the evil one, is the father of lies. And in Revelation, when it's talking about this, this battle that's taking place in the heavenly realms, it speaks of of Satan being the deceiver of the world, which reflects even what we saw a couple weeks ago when we saw this antichrist-like figure, Antiochus, being the one who causes deceit to prosper. There seems to be a battle over deceit versus truth. And if you think about it, we also see evidence of that here. When, when the angel came to speak to Daniel... What was being resisted? The, the, this other, this prince of Persia was trying to keep the angel from coming to Daniel. And this angel's purpose in verse 14 we saw is that he said, I, had, I came to make you understand what is to happen in your people. The, 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 the battle for three weeks was to keep this angel from coming to Daniel to help him to understand what was true. This battle seems to be between deceit and truth. Which means that if we're trying to, in our minds, kind of wrap our heads around where we might see this battle taking place, if we're wanting to look for where we see Satan doing his work, we shouldn't first go to places like the occult and to, to examples of demon possession. Yes, those things can be true and those things can be real, but what we really should be paying attention to is where lies are holding people captive. Whether we're talking about individuals, whether we're talking about entire cultures. Sometimes the lies that hold people captive are lies that tell us that we are more than what we are, that we are God-like, that we can say, I belong to myself, I answer to no one, I decide what is right for me, I decide who I am, I don't need any help, I am self-sufficient. That is a lie that can take us captive. Sometimes the lies are lies that tell us that we are less than we are, that I'm nothing more than an animal. I am worthless. I am hopeless. There's no way God could love me. There's no way God could forgive me. This also is part of the battle. And this is why when, when Paul tells us about this battle that we are a part of that is far bigger than we understand, he says the weapons we have relate to truth. He speaks of the belt of truth, the peace of the gospel that are shoes that give us stability as we're taking battle. He, he speaks of the shield of faith, which is holding on to what is reality. He speaks of the sword of the word of God, which helps us defend against the attacks. Each of these in different ways are pointing us to seeing and knowing what is true from God's perspective. 
And the battle that we experience, we, we know moments of battle. Sometimes it's when we, on our own, are being tempted and we feel the, the intoxicating nature, the seductive nature of a lie that invites us to go in a direction that we know is not really where we want to go. That's where the battle takes place. Or the battle sometimes is when we're in a conversation with others and we're wanting to help them to understand who Jesus is and it seems like there's something that stands in the way. That's where the battle takes place and that's why we need these weapons. That's, that's the spiritual war that we are a part of, a war that involves a battle for truth, a war that involves us but is so much bigger than us, a war that calls us to hear what is true, to pray, to speak what is true. We are part of a much larger battle that we barely understand. So our passage is not one that is in some ways incredibly practical. You might notice that there are no commands throughout where it's like, here are the three things that you should do in light of this. This passage is meant to more give us a vision for things that we oftentimes don't see, to understand things rightly. And there's one more piece that I think we also need to hear to be able to understand this rightly. And that is that this battle that is in some ways terrifying and it's maybe even feels chaotic and absolutely confusing to us, this battle is one whose outcome is not in any way in doubt because it is absolutely, completely certain that God will win. This too we see at the end of our passage. Right at the very end, it talks about how I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of of truth. And most commentators suggest that what happens in chapter 11 is him then describing what is inscribed in the book of truth. And what happens in 11 is he goes into great detail about the things that are going to happen over the next centuries. With so much certainty, even though it's talking about the future, that it's clear that God has already determined all that will take place. And the conclusion of this is that the evil one will be defeated that God will prevail and God's people will be rescued. That is the end, and it is written as certain. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, Revelation actually gives us kind of more detail about how that takes place. It, it has kind of like these two scenes side by side, and, and one of them takes place in heaven and actually mentions Michael. Michael and his angels, it says, are fighting against Satan and his angels in this cosmic battle taking place in the heavenly realm. And at a certain point, we're told, Satan is defeated. He is thrown down to earth, vanquished. We're told his time is short. And from the other scene, we recognize that what's talked about in Revelation is not something that we have to await in the future, but it's something that has already taken place. Because the second scene that we're told is happening at the same time except on earth is it speaks of a child being born to a woman. A child, it says, who, holds, who will hold an iron scepter, one who is going to be a great king. And we're told that the devil is there waiting, seeking to devour him, and it looks like he's going to devour this child but instead, the child is rescued and brought up to heaven and seated with God. And if we're reading carefully, we understand that this is talking about something that has already taken place. That Jesus was born, that at the cross, Satan was defeated. His lies were broken. 
at the cross and resurrection, the victory was won. Satan is now cast down to earth. He has no hold on anyone who understands the gospel, who places their faith in Christ. He has lost. In fact, you can tell the demons have this awareness of what their fate is. When Jesus was walking on earth, when you have this person who is, who is being occupied by hundreds of demons, what does he do when he sees Jesus? He shrieks in fear because he knows that his defeat is near. Because the battle is not in doubt as to its outcome because through the death and resurrection of Christ, Satan has been defeated. And now our calling is not to win. Our calling is to stand firm. Our calling is to hold on to the reality of what Christ has done with this armor of God to pray, to rest in the truth, and to seek to bring other people into it as we speak the truth to them in the gospel. Martin Luther you know, the, the, we'll be singing this hymn in a little while, and, and he has it right. Just one of the verses, he writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, and that word is Christ himself. If there is one practical response that probably this passage should lead us to, it is recognizing both our weakness and God's strength and leading us to prayer. And so I want to invite us, as we're doing throughout the season of Lent, to spend some time in responding in prayer. And what we'll be doing is both singing as a response to God, calling on Him, and in the middle of our song, there'll be a time where we can pray silently, whether it's confessing our sins or looking to God for help. So let's spend some time turning to God in prayer.